Well, good morning. Uh, Pastor John is away this week, so I get the privilege to come bring you the word. Driving in Colorado on Old Ridge Road on a missions trip with some teenagers, driving those 15 passenger vans you see out there in the parking lot. We were on this road in the uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. It's absolutely beautiful. Just, you're up, I don't know, 10, 12,000 feet in the air, and you're driving along the cliffs, and at one point on this road with a van filled with teenagers, the road opens up so that you're driving along the ridge, hence the name Old Ridge Road, but you're driving along the ridge of a mountain so that you're at the highest point. To the left of you is a cliff that goes down thousands and thousands of feet, certain death. To the right of you is also another cliff that goes down thousands and thousands of feet to certain death. And I remember coming around the corner and I look back at the van, I go, whoa, hold on everybody. As if they could hold the sides of the van to keep us in the middle. And I'm trying to navigate and I'm, as they say, white knuckling it because it's a curvy road and just six inches, maybe a foot too far in one direction, and that's it. You know, we're never going on a missions trip again because we're celebrating with Jesus. Like, we're driving, and it feels like you're flying. Some of the students even said that from the back seat. They go, whoa, are we flying? Because all you see is clouds below you and nothing but open sky. It was a very dangerous road. But this morning, we're going to be on a similarly dangerous road where if we make a mistake too far in one direction, you might hear the story today and think to yourself, oh, I know this story. I've taught this story. I know all about it. And you'll make the mistake that way that there's nothing new to learn, that there's nothing for you to gain, and so you might just mentally check out and stop paying attention and not hear from the Lord this morning. You could also make the mistake going the other side to the other cliff, and you might start to think, wow, this is really neat. This is interesting. I didn't know that fact or this truth. And wow, and you're going to spend all day thinking about facts and interesting tidbits. And you're going to miss God's message for you this morning. So just like I said to the teenagers, hold on, everybody. Let's not make the mistake one way or the other way. When you hear today's story, don't think, I already know everything there is to know. And don't make the other mistake and say, wow, that's so neat, and get lost in facts and figures that you don't listen for the Lord. And just like I did when I was driving that van years ago, what I think we need to do right now is pray. <laughs> and let's pray that God would help us navigate this narrow road. So would you join me in praying? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to hear from you, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be built up in our faith. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us. It wouldn't just be my words. It wouldn't be their ability to listen and pay attention and give mental focus, but it would truly be a miraculous work that only you can accomplish. And would you speak to us this morning? Lord, would you be glorified by our time spent in your word? And this week, would you apply what we hear to our hearts and minds and lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, there are going to be three main movements in this message. Kind of like points, but they're really all looking at the same thing, just from a different perspective. And so if you like to take notes, you can kind of make these three big headings. The first one is we're going to look at a story. Just a story. We're going to look at a story. Now, it's a real story. Just like I said with the kids, the stories we get in the Bible, well, I'll just ask you, are they real or are they pretend? They're real. They're real stories about real people with real motivations and mixed motivations and mixed priorities and sometimes mixed results filled with good decisions, bad decisions, evil and good and love and faith and brokenness and pain, all of it, all mixed together, and yet God working through it all. So we're going to look at a story this morning, but then that will lead us to looking at the story. 
So we're going to go from a story to the story. And then hopefully we will round it out with looking at our story. What's our story and how does it fit with the story? So let's start with a story. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open it up. And if you have a paper one, it actually may be a little bit easier because we're going to read quite a bit and there may be some jumping around a little bit. But in 1 Samuel 17, we hear and read the story about David and Goliath. So there's your first warning. Don't go off the cliff and think, oh, David and Goliath, I know that story. I know you know that story. David wins. Goliath is dead. Yay, the little guy won with a sling and some rocks. I know you know that. But there could be some more that we can hear from the Lord. And so don't fall off the cliff that way. So I'm going to be reading because I want you to hear God's version of the story, not my summary of it. But it is a little bit long, and so I'm going to read it like I was reading you a story. And uh, I may interject a few comments here and there, but follow along with me as we get into David and Goliath. But a little background here as we set up where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in this time period where the Israelites are the people of God. They were God's nation of priests, where they were supposed to represent the Lord to the rest of the world and point people to God. God had established them all the way from Abraham leading up through Moses, leading them out of, the, out of Egypt to the promised land under Joshua. Then under the judges, they were starting to kind of make their way and be known in the community. But in the time of the judges, the, the phrase that repeats itself throughout that book is that in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you read through the book of Judges, it is utter chaos. But then after Judges, God, he's going to establish the kingdom. The people sinfully ask for a king. And they reject the Lord as their king. And they want a king. And so they get King Saul. King Saul was a head taller than everyone else. Seemed pretty popular. He was like the man's man. And King Saul, he is leading the Israelites at this point, And they're fighting against their enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines were this pagan nation that was just right there as neighbors, and they had constant battles back and forth. But we find ourselves on a battlefield. We're on one hillside, you have the Israelites led by King Saul, and on the other side, you have the Philistines, the army that stands opposed to God's people. So we will start in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4 is where we will begin. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. I'm going to pause there. Don't get lost in all the measurements. He was a really big guy, had a lot of really big weapons, and he was intimidating. He was a champion, a warrior. We'll get back to some of, more of, the, of those details in a minute. But look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
This sounds like a pretty good deal, though, right? One-on-one, save thousands of lives in battle. Sounds like a pretty good deal. The problem was, have you seen this Goliath guy, right? They're not going to like fight him. I don't think they've got a good chance. So they're afraid. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Let's pause there. There is no mistake that there's a reason why it's 40 days. You see that throughout Scripture. 40 days is this spiritual challenge, an opportunity, if you would, that God gives people many times. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. It's 40 days that Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to meet with God. It's 40 years that they wander in the wilderness. There's 40, 40, 40 all the time. And here for 40 days, the faith of the Israelites is challenged by Goliath of Gath. And yet they have no response. Their faith is being tried and they're found wanting. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for, battle, army, uh, for the battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. I love David here. He's like, who dares speak against my God in such a way? He hears it for the first time and he is shocked. And he is cut to the core saying, how dare you offend my God and his power. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? What is it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Now you know the Bible is true because it includes details like that about two brothers. Doesn't that sound like two brothers? Parents out there, you got two kids in the back seat fighting and then all of a sudden, what have I done now? Didn't I just say anything? Like I can't even talk. Like they're just having this little brotherly argument. I love that. Verse 31. Let's keep going. The story gets good. It picks up pace here. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, 
Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now let's talk about this for a minute. David, a shepherd, he's out there tending his sheep, and a bear or a lion comes along and takes one of the sheep, and he chases after it. I'll tell you right now, that is not my reaction, right? If I'm out there in the wilderness with a sheep and I see a bear or a lion coming, I'm sweeping the legs of the sheep, sprinkling some, uh, you know, flavoring on it and asking, grilled or crispy? You can have this one. Eat the sheep. I'm out of here, right? I'll get another sheep, but not David. David's like, hey, you took my sheep. He chases down the lion grabs it by the beard, like the dangerous end of the animal, grabs it. He could have thrown rocks at it, right? We'll see that in a minute. He was a pretty good rock slinger. But no, he gets up close, grabs it by the beard, like he wants to look it in the eyes, like, how dare you, lion? And then he strikes it and kills the lion, kills the bear, and takes back his sheep. Like, that dude's a man. Not some youth. But I've been a youth pastor long enough that when a teenager will come and tell me a story that maybe sounds a little like that, my radar goes off of like, hmm, are we embellishing a little bit here, David? You really grab the lion by the beard? Now, I believe he did. But do you think Saul really believed he did? That's pretty intense. And yet Saul says, well, at least he's got courage, and better him than me. So go ahead, David. May the Lord be with you. Let's keep reading. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. I want to pause there again. So you see, Saul, if you were paying attention, has the same armor as Goliath. Bronze armor with chain mail. We'll get back to that. But if anyone was fitting and was prepared to fight against Goliath, it was Saul. And yet Saul says, no, I'll send a boy instead. But verse 41, let's see what happens. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and you, he will give you into our hand. Love that. Ruddy and handsome. Goliath comes out and he's super offended by this pretty boy from Israel. He's a warrior. He's like Navy SEALs trained. You know, he's just like this man's man. He just comes out. He's been challenging him for 40 days. And then out from the ranks of Israel comes this good-looking boy without any armor, not even any weapons, nothing. And he goes, you're coming at me with your staff? you got stick in your hand? What is this? I'm insulted. He's insulted by this challenge. But we'll see what happens. This is where I think children's curriculums often glaze over the details. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheremim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistine, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. I love this ending. David takes the head of Goliath and carries it with him. Did he put it in a bag, I wonder? And was that bag dripping with blood Everywhere he was walking. I mean, that just sounds disgusting, right? He just has this giant head of Goliath, and he takes it with him. But the battle rages on. And we see that the, you know, there goes the deal. The deal's off. Once Goliath is dead, the Israelites chase the Philistines. And they slaughtered them. There's dead bodies everywhere on the way back to their cities and the word that David spoke came true the birds of the air feasted on the flesh of the Philistines this is graphic like if we were there we would say whew I do not want to watch and yet this is a true story is a story with characters like David the son of Jesse Goliath from the city of Gath, Saul, the king over Israel, the people of God, and the Philistines, the enemy of God. It's a true story. But what I want to do is to look at this true story of David and Goliath and see how it fits in with the story of the Bible, the main story. Where if you had to summarize the main story of the Bible in one word, I would use the word Emmanuel. Which in three words is God with us. The story of the Bible is the story of God and his relationship with us. A loving God who made this incredible creation. And then there was a horrific fall and rebellion But then there is an opportunity for redemption and salvation and God working all things throughout history to finally lead to the day where it will be God with us again. From Genesis to Revelation, God is working out Emmanuel, God with us, so that we could be with him and enjoy him forever. 
It's the story that rides above all the other individual stories of the Bible. It's the story of God that is masterfully woven into every single character, every single nuance and relational friction and problem. And every time somebody has faith and through every failure and sin, it's why Joseph can say, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because God is working his story, the story, out through even the evil of his brothers. It's the story that is the foundation for everything that we believe, every hope that we have, everything that we can place our faith upon is dependent upon this story, the story of the Bible. This collection of 66 books is not just put together randomly. This isn't just the most interesting pieces of history. God gives us these stories for a reason. He put them here so that we could see this overarching weaving story throughout history so that it makes it his story. God works through life events. He even works through sin and rebellion. He works through our repentance and he sees us trust in him and we show faith or we show failure and doubt. God works through it all. And he's driving toward the end to accomplish his purpose so that it could be God with us again. So let's ask the question, how does the story of David and Goliath fit into God's story, the story of Scripture? Well, to answer that, I want to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it lists all the things that he created. He created the stars and plants and animals, the the water and the sky. Created man and woman in his image. And at the end he says, it is very good. It is God with his people in the garden. Adam and Eve loving one another, trusting one another, and living together. But then we know that it doesn't stay very good. Suddenly in our story, there is a lying serpent, a snake, who comes along and tricks Eve and convinces her and Adam to sin against God, to eat of the forbidden fruit and disobey God and seek for things that they should not be looking for. And the consequences of this disobedience is death and separation from God, a casting out of the garden in Genesis 3. Where now you cannot go to be with God any longer. There's now this barrier between man and his God. And I want to read for you the curse, the judgment that God gives to the serpent. Because I think it has to do with our story today. So this is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This is what God says to the serpent after the woman and the man were found eating the forbidden fruit. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." See, here we have this snake who's told he's going to eat the dust of the ground. But there will be continuous war, enmity between the snake and the descendants of the woman. The seed of the woman will always be at battle with the seed of the snake and his ways. The snake uses worldly systems, governments, leaders, culture, sin, temptation, all these things to try and draw us away from God. And his battle plan has been the same since the beginning. He speaks lie after lie after lie about God, about you and I, about this world, and about what is truly valuable. The serpent is at war with us, God's people. And he's trying to do anything he can to get us to worship anything and everything other than the true God who deserves our praise. 
The story of history is the story of the snake trying to pull us further and further away from the Lord. But in this passage, there is also a great promise that even though the snake will bruise the heel of the descendant, there will be a day when the head of the snake is crushed. This battle with the snake has been raging from the beginning. And the one question that is never really asked, but should be asked through Scripture, is the unwritten question. When is the snake's head going to be crushed? Are you the one? Are you going to be the snake crusher? Where's the snake crusher coming? Is today the day that the serpent finally gets his head smashed in? Who's going to fulfill this promise? This is the question that plays out through Genesis and then all the way into our story. So I want to jump back into 1 Samuel and I want to look at just how it plays out even in a little bit higher up view of 1 Samuel. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, you can even just look at the headings, but in chapter 10, Saul is anointed as king. God now has his lead man here on earth. Now, I know he was there because the people had sinned. They wanted a king, but God is working through that. And so here is Saul, God's man, anointed by God to lead his people, to represent the seed of the woman. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read to you just verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Well, man, they just lived brutal lives back then. I'm just going to gouge out everybody's right eye. But what you may not notice, because we speak English and not Hebrew, in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, so to the original readers, they would have immediately picked up on this. Nahesh, the king of the Ammonites. Do you know what Nahesh means in Hebrew? Snake. He was the snake king. So here you have Saul established as God's man. His first battle is to battle against the snake king of the Ammonites. It's the battle that's been raging, and here it is on display in a microcosm. Here is God's people versus the serpent's people, the serpent's king. Here is the snake king against Saul. And we see that what happens in this story is that the Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul and they defeat the snake king with a great victory. And in chapter 11, verse 13, Saul declares, Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He has victory over the snake king because he trusted in the Lord and his strength. And so everybody asks the question, Is Saul the snake crusher? Well, quickly you discover in the next couple of chapters, no, he is not. Saul falls to the ways of the world, believes the lies of the serpent. He relies on his own strength instead of the Lord's. He operates out of fear and he disobeys God. He is not the final snake crusher. We'll come back to David in a minute, but even David's son, this plays out in 1 Kings chapter 1. When David's son, after David becomes a really old man, he's got lots of sons. But the one son that God says, I want this one to be my representative, was Solomon. He wants Solomon to be his king. And everybody knows that, including one of Saul's other sons, Adonijah. And Adonijah, in 1 Kings chapter 1, says, I want to set up my kingdom for my strength and for my glory and you know where Adonijah goes with this huge crowd, with all the army, all the people to show off his strength, his charisma. He goes to the serpent's stone. That's where he goes to establish his kingdom. But in contrast to that, 
Solomon is anointed by God, by the priest of God, from oil from the tabernacle. 1 Kings chapter 1, it just lays out this comparison. Solomon is God's man, and Adonijah is the serpent's man. And Solomon wins out that day and becomes the king of Israel. And so the question is asked, is Solomon the snake crusher? No. Even Solomon, in all his wisdom, was deceived by the serpent, and he plays the fool. He is not the ultimate snake crusher. But let's get back to David. David here with Goliath. You see, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, that David is secretly anointed to be king, even as a young boy. Samuel goes to David and God says, you're my new man. I've rejected Saul as king. David, you're the guy. And there is no mistake that chapter 16 happens right after chapter 15. David's anointed as king and his first test is against Goliath. And here's where we have the danger of falling off the cliff the other way that there's some fascinating, neat little parallels and metaphors and meaning. Don't get lost in that. And let's keep listening for God's message for us today. But we saw Goliath in chapter 17, how uh, he had some great armor. And again, it says that he had a bronze helmet, a bronze armor on his legs, and bronze chain mail. Now again, we don't speak Hebrew, neither do I, but... There are people that do, and I read what they write. But the Hebrew word for bronze is noheshet. That's how I would say it. Probably wrong. But the Hebrew word for bronze is noheshet. The Hebrew word for snake, remember, was nohesh. You just add a little bit of ending to change it from snake to bronze. And for you and I, you're like, yeah, I don't know. To the Hebrews of their day, they often tied those two words together. That was a cultural thing that bronze was like saying it was a snake-like thing. It was the snake color. It was snakish, serpentish. Nehesh and Neheshet, very similar sounding. So they tied these two thoughts together. And to prove it to you, even earlier in the Bible with Moses... Do you remember the story when Moses is leading the people and they're out in the wilderness and they sin against God? So God sends the fiery serpents and they bite the Israelites and they're all dying from these poisonous snake bites. So God says, hey, Moses, make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. A bronze snake in Hebrew was a noheshet nehesh. Make a noheshet nehesh. And put it on a pole, and when people look at the Neheshet Nehesh, they will be saved. And so it's this tying together of those two words so that the Hebrew ear would hear serpent like when they hear bronze, that color. And then to add to this, chain mail, the Hebrew word that we translate as chain mail, you and I probably picture metal chain mail from medieval knights and things. But they didn't have that technology back then. It was actually, you could translate it, scales. And so I brought with me a few of our, you know, we're, we're Renaissance folks. And so we do the Renaissance fairs. And like these are some cool armbands where it's straps laid on top of another. Now these are leather, but his were made out of bronze, the snake color. And his chain mail you could easily translate it as snake scales. Same, you would use the same words. And so he has bronze, snakish, snake scale armor. To the Hebrew, they're seeing this comparison that Goliath is the champion of the way of the snake. He is the serpent's man, the man of the world with all the power and the the defenses that the world has to provide. And you see that King Saul has the same armor. He has the same serpent armor with the same word used for chain mail, the same snake scales. 
But Saul knows that he in his strength, fighting the serpent's way, cannot defeat Goliath in his worldly serpent way. So that's why Saul for 40 days does not go out and fight. Because he knows he's no match. But along comes David, this shepherd boy. And you remember what Saul tries to do for David? He says, here, take my armor. Put on the ways of the world and you will be safe. You can defend yourself with my snake armor, with my worldly wisdom, worldly power, worldly system. David, become like the snake to fight the snake. But David says, no. These not only don't fit, which would have been a funny picture in that tent, David and big arm, you know, just like, this isn't working. But not only do they not fit, it is not fitting. They're unnecessary and they're offensive to God. God does not need the ways of the serpent to defeat the serpent. So David goes out in the strength of the Lord. Verse 45, he says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David comes to fight the snake using the strength of the Lord. I want to read to you just a a little quote out of an article by Rick Shank. This is entitled, David and Goliath, Think Again. It's an article that comes out of Bethlehem Seminary, where Bobby is studying right now, looking at this same thing. But look, listen to what uh, Rick Schenck says. Standing before the armies of Yahweh, we have Goliath of the, the Noheshet team, playing for the Nahesh. Here, the bronze serpent defies the armies of Yahweh, just as he attacked Eve and Adam with lies and threats. Where is the seed to destroy him? How long, O Lord? Just then, David is introduced into the battle. We wonder, is David the seed? Foolishly, Saul tries to dress David as a snake in his own armor. You see, Saul's armor was identical to Goliath's. A helmet of snake color and a coat of scales. The text tells us it did not fit David. Indeed, it was not fitting. David is not on that team. As the two engaged the battle, the serpent warrior cursed David by his gods. In a reversal of the blessing of the garden, he declared that he would feed David's body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This battle was not merely about Philistine and Israelite. It was about who rules over heaven and earth, the serpent or Yahweh. And now comes David, not with serpent armor or weapons, but with powerful declarations. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That should ring a bell for us. Indeed, David proceeds to bruise Goliath on the head with a stone. The serpent warrior fell on his face and ate dust. And then David removed Goliath's head with his enemy's own sword. In this battle against the serpent, the seed won. But as we will learn later in this book, David is not the seed. Alas, the seed who will conquer is yet to come. So we see David fighting for the Lord against the serpent, the serpent's warrior. And he wins the victory. So the question is, is David the man? But no, he is not. David too falls to the lies of the snake and eventually gives in. But I think our story of David and Goliath actually gives us a clue to who would become the great snake crusher. Look again at chapter 17, verse 54, where we ended it off. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. That is odd, because at this time Jerusalem belonged to the Jebusites. 
It was not an Israelite town. It had yet to be conquered. And Jerusalem wasn't like it was right next door. It's not that far away, but it's a good day's walk. And there's David taking Goliath's head for no known reason all the way to Jerusalem. Why? Why would he take Goliath's head to Jerusalem? Well, maybe David took that head and on a hill just outside of town, he buried it or put it on a stake as a warning and as a symbol looking forward. And David maybe wasn't sure even why. But God knew. Because God's telling his story. That one day, the great snake crusher, Jesus Christ, would go up onto that same hill outside of Jerusalem. And he'd be crucified on a cross. And his blood would drip down, possibly on the very site where Goliath's head was buried. And here's another little interesting thing, that if you take the word Goliath of Gath, that his name, Goliath of Gath, and in Hebrew, and you just swipe away the, the middle letters, you smush those two words together, you end up with Golgotha. The place of the skull. Or perhaps Goliath's head was buried in anticipation of the day when the serpent himself not just his champion, would be crushed. You see, this is how Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. This is how the story of God comes to culmination. It's how he deals out the deadly blow by Jesus Christ giving his life and dying on the cross. He makes a way for us to have victory over the snake. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. For our sake he made him who knew no who he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that just as Moses lifted up the snake on a pole, remember the Noheshet Nehesh? That he must be lifted up on a pole in the same way. Just as the Israelites looked to the snake and they saw their sin and the consequence of their sin in those fiery serpents, they found salvation and healing and forgiveness. We too look to the cross and we see the consequence of our sin in the brutal death and judgment of Jesus Christ our Savior. It was our sin that put him here. By, our, by his wounds we are healed, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The snake is ultimately crushed for all of eternity because Jesus was crushed on the cross. And he cut off the head of the snake using his own sword. And Jesus declares victory for all time. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, allow a story about a shepherd boy and a worldly champion point you to the truth of the story that God wants you to know and believe. It's a story that will change your life. It's the ultimate story. It's God's story. Don't fall off the cliff in either direction and think there's nothing to learn from David and Goliath or get fascinated too much with bronze snakes. But listen to the message of hope that we have this morning. A message of eternal life. The war is won, but the battle for your soul rages on. So if you don't know him this morning, if you don't believe in this God, if you don't believe in his story and you are lost in your sin and stuck in the ways of the serpent, then I plead with you this morning to surrender. 
Don't surrender to the serpent, but surrender to the Lord. Believe that God loved you and wants to have a relationship with you. That is why you are here. It's why you exist to know and enjoy God forever. But then look inside yourself and see that even you are filled with sin and rebellion. And just like Adam and Eve, just like Saul and David and Solomon, you are not strong enough. And you fall to the lies of the serpent and you play the fool. And your sin has consequences. Just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, you have been cast away from the Lord. And now there is this sin separating you from God and from enjoying Him properly. No amount of going to church or reading your Bibles or great conversations about Nehesh and Neheshet or anything like that is enough to save you. What you needed was the great snake crusher, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who came to this world and he lived the perfect life. He never sinned, never fell to the ways of the serpent. And he willingly and lovingly with you on his mind, went to the cross, gave up his life, and paid the price so that you could find forgiveness and new life in him. He crushed the head of the serpent so that he could bring you home. And now all that is required of you is to believe Trust in Him. Turn away from the ways of the serpent and turn to the Lord and be like David and trust that He has the strength to fight the battle and to win on your behalf. So believe in Jesus Christ this morning. That's the message you can receive from David and Goliath. But perhaps you are a believer You've lived a faithful life of service to God for years. There's a message for you this morning as well. See, that lying serpent is still out there, prowling around like a hungry lion. And sometimes, I'll be honest, it feels like he gets us. Feels like he catches us from time to time. The world becomes overwhelming. Fears keep us frozen. And the temptations, they just seem too great. We start to believe the lies of the world. We believe the lies that we tell ourselves. And we begin to doubt in this great God who we put our hope in. We start to lose faith. We lose our confidence. That holy swagger that David had when he walked out to face Goliath for us turns into a stumble and a fall. Maybe we've made a mistake that we're so ashamed of we would just rather hide and never come up again. Maybe there's a broken relationship that we're just dealing with. Maybe there's been abuse. So everything in life is seen through that prism of pain. Maybe there's some sort of an addiction that you can't seem to overcome. And you feel like the snake is winning and your soul is bleeding out, the battle seems to be lost. We feel maybe like the snake has got us in his teeth and he's squeezing us and constricting around us, ready to swallow us whole. But here this morning that just like David, that little shepherd boy went looking for his sheep and he grabbed that lion by the beard and struck him. So our good shepherd comes looking for us. And he grabs that serpent and he takes us out of his mouth and says, this is mine. You cannot have this one. This sheep belongs to me. This is my daughter. This is my son. And you cannot have him. You cannot take her. He is our good shepherd. And he says, that the, the ones that the Lord has given him, he will not lose a single one. That's his promise. 
So if you feel like your life is in the jaws of the evil one, cry out to your good shepherd and believe that he is coming for you. You will not be lost forever. And then us as a church, when we look out at this world, and as Christians we lament decisions that are made, politics of the day, when we read the news, it looks like God's team is losing. We start to see that the snake is gaining ground all around us. And the world seems to slip more and more into the ways of the serpent and away from God. I want you to have hope this morning that these are only temporary victories on his behalf. You are on the winning team. Jesus Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, and it's only a matter of time before God's true story aligns with our story. So when God calls you to fight in this battle, to be his ambassador and represent him on earth, don't be tempted and put on the serpent's armor, thinking that you will fight with your own strength, your abilities, or the ways of this world. Instead, put on the armor of God and fight with His strength. So when the world comes at you with its version of truth, its settled science, its corrupted morality, and it mocks you in your faith, and it says, who do you think you are to stand against culture, the world system, progress? Who are you to stand against the power of the evil one? then we as a church can reply like David. We came to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And his victory is our victory. His strength is our strength. And by his grace, we will stand. Jesus meant it when he said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The snake is not strong enough to conquer our king. We win. Whatever it looks like out there, keep fighting by the strength of the Lord. Have faith. Be at peace. Show compassion. Show love. Trust in the power of the gospel to change lives and believe that the church is flourishing. It is not dying. It may be shifting and moving and going through ups and downs around the world. But since the beginning, the serpent has been looking for ways to destroy us. But through it all, God has been working to multiply us. And here we are, his people we're still standing. No government, no law, no army, no temptation will destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We win. So let's fight. Let's join the battle. Let's go out in God's strength. So it's a story about a shepherd boy from Israel who defeated a champion of the Philistines. It's a story of faith and confidence in the Lord. It's a story about victory for our God. And it's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God and His plan to rescue us from our sin and deal the final blow to the head of the serpent of old. And it's our story. It's our story of a faithful shepherd who will not let a single sheep be lost. It's our story of our king who will defend us, fight for us, and who has won the victory for us to enjoy. So what do we do? We join the battle and fight by faith, for the war has been won. So this morning, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, may Jesus Christ receive all glory and honor and praise that is due his name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are small parts of your story. 
And yet, in your love, you sent Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, to die on a cross, to pay the price, to suffer the wrath from the Father so that we could be saved, so that the serpent could be crushed, so that we could enjoy you forever. Lord, may we see from this story our place with you. For you are God with us. You're with us in our pain, in our sufferings. You chase after us when the serpent seems to take us. Lord, may you be praised for your power, for your strength. And just like David said years ago, may everyone know that the Lord is here and that you are good, that you are powerful. And so I pray for those of us in this room that if any are still far from you, lost in their sins, Lord, would your spirit be at work? Would it convince them? Would it give them a new heart, a heart to believe, eyes to see, ears to hear, and may they trust in you and be changed for eternity. To no longer be on the team of the serpent, but instead join in the army of God. Lord, for the rest of us, may we have boldness and a kind of holy swagger to go out into this world trusting you every step of the way. May we give you praise today for your great name, for your great gift of salvation, and the power that you have to rescue us from our sin. God, you deserve all glory and praise. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.